This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. This conversation I had with Nick Osborne, who's been involved for 25 years with groups uh, involved with uh, social and environmental change. And uh, he has particular expertise in how to make <clears throat> those groups most effective. So we talked about, uh, yeah, we focused very much on uh, the, how, do, how groups of people change effectively um, and uh, a little bit on how our personal practice um, can be brought into that. Um, so we, we talked about his tour of 30 different eco-villages and intentional communities across Europe and the USA. Um, the many different trainings that he's done uh, and, uh, and applications into different groups. So around permaculture, his work with the transition town movement. He was one of the people involved in creating the charter for Extinction Rebellion. Uh, we talked about the Occupy movement, deep adaptation, his work with Craig Hamilton, the spiritual teacher, whose uh, teachings very much focused around group work and uh, group change. We talked about how to prevent our egos from hijacking work in groups and the importance that psychotherapy uh, plays in that and how spiritual practices like meditation can improve group effectiveness and also hold the uh, great peril of our moment in history in a way that doesn't uh, give in to panic uh, and existential dread um, because underlying it all we can we've got one foot in the peace that surpasses all understanding so I hope you uh, enjoy this conversation with Nick. Um, thank you very much. Nick Osborne, welcome uh, and thank you very much for joining me, having a conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Nice to be here. But you have a particular expertise in working with groups of people. Uh, so you've been involved with many, many of the, you know, some very well-known um, social and climate activist groups um, who are looking to affect deep and long-lasting and effective change in culture and society um, and these same principles very much apply in the, in the way that the microcosm reflects the macrocosm uh, so groups of people don't behave exactly the same way as individuals and that might be something we might explore but there's a lot of parallels so the the individual practice the practices you've done as a person individually you've kind of taken out into groups of people and experimented working with with people as um well that, i don't need to say any more than that we'll just <laughs> explore so we're going to use your your personal journey with all of this work that you've been doing um and <coughs> we'll pull out the odd thing to to explore a bit further as we go so does that sound good yeah yeah cool happy <clears throat> to explore that and see what what comes out of those reflections yeah mm. so um 
where does your journey begin with uh, with the first group of people that you you work with in in trying to change the world mm. um So probably the very, very start of all of that was when I was a student at university. Uh, this would have been the uh, early 1990s. There was a, um, I bumped into a load of socialist workers on the high street when I was in Swansea. And um, one of them, particularly young lady, was really attractive and I, I was really interested in her. So I went along, started going to socialist worker meetings. Um, primarily inspired by her and then in and in the university years went to a lot of the different socialist worker party meetings really not because I was bought into the ideology or committed to it or because I was there because of her but more because of a kind of fascination of oh things don't seem to be going great in our society and these people are really focused in a very narrow way on trying to change things you know, they were focusing on, well, in a very narrow way on the Marxist ideology and then looking at applying that to the whole of society. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting um, approach. You know, I was in my late teens at that point um, and relatively inexperienced in the world of social change. And I was just fascinated by their, their focus on whole scale social change. And... So I went to a lot of their meetings and a few of my friends, we'd, we'd go and then we'd all talk about it afterwards. And I had, I had what I found to be a very limiting experience because the meetings had a particular format. There was a very narrow ideology around, oh, it has to be like the, you know, everything was done within the confines of this Marx, Marxist ideology, even and though they're looking. If I could, could I, it, it, my understanding of this Marxist ideology is that it kind of privileges the uh, economics as the kind of, the thing that needs to be changed the economic uh structure that the, yeah. the large scale economic structure yeah um and that you, you know you and i both acknowledge that that's a very very important even fundamental aspect of social change um but there's also all of these other things to it too um which we're gonna which we're gonna get into and uh, is that yeah right on the right track though okay yeah so very much focused in terms of the integral quadrants in the lower right quadrant in terms of structures and social features and society and external collective economic structures and processes and me and my friends at the time we would have a lot of discussions afterwards and we were very much kind of in reaction like we got quite involved with them and, and was part of it and also had quite a strong reaction as well. So there was a kind of love-hate thing going on with it. And our reaction was, was I think it was to, to the partiality of that approach. It was like, wow, you know, what they're doing is really focused in one thing, but there's a lot more to the changes that need to happen than that. And we started talking a lot then about lifestyle politics. Well, what about if we change the way that we live our life and if we express our politics through the way we live our life rather than just campaigning and trying to change, every, change other people? Um, so we would have a lot of conversations about, well, it's missing a lot, you know, saying so. That, that's one of the things I've noticed through reading um, the literature about some of the socialist 
states that have existed um it seems to be the way that that it goes that this it's a, it's a a systemic change which is forced upon people from the outside it, it, it's not necessarily tr- uh, spending much attention on transforming the consciousness of people uh, on the inside their interiors it's just sort of forcing uh, a large-scale um, in, uh, social infrastructure on them and just um, hoping that everybody would their minds would just yield and melt into this this imposed external structure which um so often didn't seem to happen and a lot of the problems you know were around this uh the 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 way they didn't mesh the outside and the inside it's you know (laughs) you can't just force rules on people and 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 hope that that's going to change their consciousness because um it's it's there's something very brutal about it and some of the brutality of some of the socialist states that have existed before kind of hinges on that denial of the interior of people um you know their their hopes and dreams and personal uh connections with with people i mean it, yeah so that's just something i've i've noticed and one of the things i've you know uh, felt the partiality of that and and felt the pain of it yeah Mm -hmm. and i think that was part of the narrative that through the changes in the macroeconomic structures and controlling the means of production the consciousness of the masses and the people will be changed through that so there was some kind of iterative relationship there but certainly the approach of that ideology was was partial and was preferencing the external macro structures over anything internal and or even so much cultural or individual so yeah i think that was part of um a kind of, i guess my experience early experience you know as a very young idealistic um person in the late 1990s or mid 1990s at that point i wasn't able to like use the language and say oh well that seems partial or you know that's preferencing the lower right quadrant over any of the other quadrants, but I just, I sensed it. And so in reaction to that, tried to, I, I guess I went the other way and tried to preference other things instead. So in lifestyle politics, preferencing the individual choices, preferencing how we choose to live our life and how that influences the culture. Um, so I was still very much in that stage of only seeing one, working within one or two of those quadrants rather See, it, interesting it seems like you flipped from being um you know a liberal to a conservative you know if you think about it, i mean i don't i don't think you've ever been a conservative in your in your life but that kind of flip between the collective to the individual mm. um it's kind of reflected in uh, so democrats um liberals socialists tend to look at change coming from the you know the the the, the community the the commons the um the social the society culture and the conservative view republican view being a bit more along the lines of you know, people pulling them putting themselves up by their own bootstraps and you know self-made people and uh, not relying on uh, a big government and those kind of things so mm. um i mean, I mean, I, yeah, so in, in, 
I don't, I'm not saying that you suddenly became a conservative, but it's interesting how mm. we, at the moment we, we exist in, we have this kind of political polarization where you're either over here or you're over there. And mm. it's just people, you know, the only choice seems to be if you're dissatisfied with this, you just have to bounce to the other side. Um, yeah. And one of the, 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 the types of media I'm particularly enjoying at the moment are ones which will range all over this spectrum. Um, and uh, it's a new thing. It's not quite, but it's sort of transpartisan. But it's not. It's not centrism. Uh, it's kind of something different. Mm. Um, but maybe we could uh, get into that a bit later. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was bouncing between the ends of that polarity, from preferencing collective and collective structures and processes to more individual. And I've kind of swung a different different times have made that swing to different ends of that polarity so that was in to go back to the original story that was moving more into like lifestyle politics individual choices and things like that um and i at the same time as as well after that i was then getting involved in other kinds of social action so after le leaving university and then um, being involved in various campaigns. I was involved in um, Amnesty International, so running a local Amnesty International group and running a rainforest campaign to try and save rainforests in South America, working with Local Agenda 21 initiative, which was in the mid-1990s around um, local environmental initiatives. Um, and I guess that was my... I was also part of Charter 88, which was a campaign for democratic and constitutional reform in the UK. That was my foray into more conventional social action, kind of volunteering. Um, you know, I was running the local amnesty group and there are particular protocols for how that's done. You know, you have a chair, you have a chair of the meeting and you have a secretary, and you have a treasurer and there's the meetings follow a particular format. Um, there's nothing very explicit, but things tend to work in a particular way with the group in terms of who's in, you know how decisions get made and who's in charge. None of it's ever ever spoken or clarified because people don't tend to pay attention to that kind of thing. But there's a kind of way that it's generally done, and then because that's unspoken um, and implicit, it then creates there are often misunderstandings, and then people will often fall out and then leave, uh, and that's there tends to be a kind of cycle of that. And that's why people's involvement in those groups tend to be either quite long-term and established and down, going down a particular path or people come and join, things don't really work out and then they leave again. That um, raises something that is interesting. So that <clears throat> you can be like a bit like the proverbial fish in the water that doesn't realise it's, it's in water and mm. the water being these, the structure of these interactions between people. The, the kind of game that these people are playing when they come yeah. together to affect yeah. some kind of change. But the, the rules of the game are not made explicit in the, in the way that you, if you play Monopoly or something, you've got the list of rules and you can read the rules out and they're all explicit and everybody understands it. And that's, that helps the game run smoothly. I mean, mm. you know, it can be, you can be a very, it can be a very competitive game, but you're always referring back to the rules, you know, for disputes. Um, and if 
those rules are not made explicit, then it can create quite a mess. Um, and that's where I think the importance of some of these more mental disciplines come in that, um, you know, to, to use our use maps or theories or uh, mental models to try and that's how you access these implicit structures that we can't see yeah it's through that kind of means of of, of some kind of uh cognitive penetration of that to to bring it out of the ether and make it seem um and in quite a lot of social activist groups um getting brainy or you know getting into your head is is seen as kind of bad um it's been my experience of, of a fair number of groups and as mm. soon as you start talking in those terms people are like get out of your head <laughs> um but i i think it's obviously we, i mean there's downsides to being stuck in your head for sure mm. um and i'm not saying being stuck in your head is a good thing but at least acknowledging that sometimes you need to use your the intellect to uh, make some of these things seem um, is, is a really necessary thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that what you just said, I had a, a kind of realization about that on the back of um, some pretty difficult experiences with groups where there were some very bad fallings out where, where everything was explicit created the conditions for loads of conflict that conflict happened there were some really bad fallings out so having spent some number of years doing the campaigning work as well with all those initiatives and me and some friends some of whom I had been at university with and who'd been engaging with the socialist workers party around we decided to i'd become disillusioned with conventional approaches to social change and those conventional ways of running meetings and groups. And it just all felt like, oh, wow, this isn't really working very well and there's got to be a better way to do it. So we took the somewhat radical step of chucking, we chucked in everything we were doing, me and these friends, we were packed in our jobs or whatever else we were involved in. And we went off to live in the woods and we started a, a we wanted to demonstrate how it was possible for people to live sustainably on the planet. Um, by living a sustainable lifestyle. So we went to live in some woods and we built some shelters, we dug a well, we um, planted some vegetables. Uh, this was in the southwest of Ireland and we made an arrangement with the landowner where we could um, manage some of the woodland in exchange for being able to stay there. And we were, you know, kind of mid-twenties, idealistic, uh, you know, let's turn our backs on society and the more conventional ways of living and trying to engage and change the world. And let's just show people how it's possible to do it by doing it. And it was pretty idyllic for a while. It was amazing. We were doing all this amazing stuff. And then it began to unravel because of all of the things we've spoken about. Because so, because uh, we still all had our own, implicit assumptions about what we wanted to do and how we wanted things to work and we had no rules there were no rules of the game other than the you know very fundamental cultural norms that we have and 
So that descended into a pretty um, difficult situation where, you know, some of us in the group, we really fell out with each other. It got pretty kind of wild and feral at some points. If you imagine living in the woods. And um, yeah, I guess that was a, a big fallout and it was a, a massively powerful learning experience for me of like, wow, to be involved in this kind of thing, there needs to be some kind of rules or some kind of foundation or some kind of shared agreements that we can use to rely on when things get difficult. Mm. Because if we don't have things to rely on when things get difficult, then it can be pretty uncontained. The, that, that kind of goes back to that point I was making where you know, mental constructions are deemed as uh, mundane and uh, part of the oppressive system and having things like a mission statement or a manifesto, mm. you know, it's, it's boo down with all of that stuff. Mm. Um, but you, you can see it in the United States when, when they keep coming back to the constitution, you know, it's this really powerful document. I'm not saying it's a perfect thing, but it's really, really, you, you know, from the outside looking at the United States, that to see how they keep going back to the document, um, has been a quite a learning it's made me realize the importance of of that and <clears throat> but, um well i have a little bit of a community where i live um and you know this is something that we've discovered is that you need to have conversations with people to interpret their what their outlook is what their goals are what they're bringing to uh, this whole thing you're trying to do together. Um, and if you, the more you do that, you'll find that there are common themes which are coming up, but there's also many ways that we don't line up um, as people. And if you don't have those conversations, they're the kind of meta conversations about, you know, the meaning of what, what do you think the meaning of life is or where's this all going? What are your hopes and dreams? How do you, how do you see the correct way of interacting amongst ourselves and that kind of thing if you don't in, try and interpret through conversation the other people's insides um you can end up with everybody not flying in formation because they're all trying to do something different but because you haven't had that conversation <laughs> you're all going off like this and, and and that's where having some kind of mission statement's really important uh, and i mean that's something we've struggled with here where, where i live for sure um, um and I think having a clarity of the, the that vision is is a very important thing to, to to keep coming back to. So yeah, that sparked a whole load of things for me. And one of them is, uh, as well, it's very important, as you said, to have some kind of alignment around purpose. So where you want to go and what it is that you're doing together. And as well as that, it's almost like overlaid on top of that or alongside it. There also needs to be a conversation about how do we do that? How are we working together? What kind of expectations and values do we have around that? What shared working agreements do we have around how we do things? And how are we going to figure things out if and when things get difficult? And in a lot of the social change or community-based organisations or activist organisations, um, people tend to preference um, action 
and getting on with stuff because that's why they're, they're there to do something to achieve a, some kind of aim and to neglect the aspect of the interpersonal working agreements and the, the focus on relationships so that's one pattern there are the various patterns that show up that i've noticed over the years i've been working on this um, so that's one pattern is the kind of preferencing of action over process um, so that's one imbalance that i've often seen and worked with in groups and then that imbalance is, is at one end of a polarity that can have the equal and opposite imbalance which is when people get they realize that or, or they get over focused on the process and they spend their whole time sitting around talking and trying to figure out how they're going to make decisions together but they can't do that because they can't decide how they're going to decide how they're going to make decisions about that and who's going to be included in that and who gets a voice and then it's not fair if somebody doesn't get a voice and then they should be included but then how do they decide who gets included and then how do they make that you know they kind of go down this wormhole it's a, it, the image I've got is standing in one of those rooms where you've got two mirrors opposite each other and you can just see yourself infinitely spread out through and then it's a bit like forgetting which one of those is you yeah uh, th and that you can actually step out of that and you know and out of that kind of perspective refraction mm -hmm. um, but if you forget if you think that you are all of those perspectives, then you can't even move out of it and you're just stuck in this, this endless, um, yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't know if you've ever been involved in any of those kind of group or... <clears throat> I certainly have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular meeting where I, can't, I think it was it was probably some anti-capitalist thing happening in a squat somewhere in London when I lived there, and we we're having a meeting and we had to kind of it we had we had this this thing where we were we were anybody was allowed to bring whatever perspective they wanted, and uh, this lady had been she was sitting there with sunglasses on she was really quiet didn't say anything the whole time, and then she she said. Uh, you've all been talking quite a lot. I think it's time for me to say something. She took off her glasses and stood up and just launched into this two minutes of opera singing and then just sat down and put her dark glasses back on and uh, didn't say anything again. And um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it just kind of made me think of, of that. You're sort of having to integrate everything, no matter how crazy. Uh, and uh, and un, un, unhelpful. <laughs> it, it, it honestly, in the moment, I think everybody there felt that that didn't really contribute anything to our meeting. But none of us, we were all kind of so wedded to this um, welcoming of every perspective, no matter how bizarre, that we none of us said um, that we thought that that was not really very helpful. Mm. You know. We just kind of took a deep bow, <laughs> moved on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a great example of that. When you, again, when you're preferencing one thing over another, so you're preferencing that all voices are valid and any perspectives are welcome and no one should be not allowed to speak, you know, that whole approach to, to being in a group. 
when you preference that without balancing it with any kind of structure or clear process or explicit agreements, then the group can very easily just implode on itself by just chasing its tail the whole time because it's difficult to get anything done because of that. Um, and so that tends to be a kind of, there are a number of different polarities at play here. So one is the polarity between action and reflection or action and process. So some people just want to get on with stuff and don't ever want to deal with the process stuff. Other groups go the other way and just totally overdo the process stuff and can never get anything done. Um, and then there's another polarity between, there's another approach that does really work at making those things explicit and does put in place a set of rules of the game and does um, overdo that aspect and, and misses out the aspect that's about the quality of the human relationships and the quality of interpersonal connection. And so some um, groups or organizations that I've been involved with kind of go that way instead and end up having too much focus on the how you're working together just in terms of what the rules are, but not paying any attention to the, the personal and interpersonal. And obviously, so one thing I, that I wanted to say is um, I think there's a difference between balance and harmony yeah. that um, balance is a kind of almost a static image. You know, if you were to say, oh, well, you could balance out all of these approaches, there's something slightly um, impotent about that image of balance. Whereas if, if you've got, if you take harmony as a metaphor, um, Harmony is a sort of when you bring things into some harmonic alignment, then you get it creates some kind of energetic force for for transformation, for change. Something new happens when you when you make that harmony. So it's what one slight conceptual distinction I like to make. Yeah. When 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 trying to integrate all of these different ways. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of saying that. Um, the way that I've experienced it happening is is through a process of kind of differentiation and an integration where something that was collapsed in on itself and was all confusing and a bit messy, people can see the different parts of it and they differentiate it. But then instead of working with them separately or trying to balance them in that way, they can integrate them in a way that creates that kind of harmony that we're talking about. So that's the more kind of, um, I guess, progressive or more functional or better performing teams or organizations that I've been involved in, the ones that are able to do that. They're able to have differentiated, oh, there's a, there's a purpose here and we're aligning around the purpose and we're moving in that direction together and doing some work around clarifying that and around that alignment. There's, so that's the kind of action side of it. There's the how we're working together and, um, the explicit rules of the game and articulating those writing them down sometimes that's done in the form of some kind of constitution which has the benefits that you were talking about before around the american constitution and then there's the piece around the interpersonal relationships like the quality of the relationships the quality of the connection and the um yeah the more that side of things and that groups or organizations that can both differentiate and have those notice them as being separate, but then reintegrate them and work with them in that kind of harmony 
kind of way that's energetically building on its each other. The the, the one of the other elements to add there is 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 the people's individual um, what they are bringing as individuals into it. So you've got the we might call it the I, the we, and the it. Yeah. The it being that constitutional thing, the we being this the rules of engagement between us interpersonally as a, as a co- collection of people. But then there's also this, um, you know, who, how evolved and authentic are we as people, as individuals coming into this collective group. And uh, one of the other ones that is, is where people th- assume that you get all these high quality individuals, you bring them together and then magic's going to happen. Mm. But actually, so often, uh, you know, that that's happened because they're not necessarily they're bringing the superhumans together as individuals and they can't work. They can't play as a team uh, because they don't have that kind of cultural thing of the we. And then they might not have such a strong um, constitution Mm. uh, or manifesto in the in the it thinking of like an in, the English football team or something like that, you know, yeah. they're all superstars that come from clubs that may work better together as a team than when they all come together and work as England. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's really the sweet spot uh, in terms of working together, getting things done together. Um, high performing teams or organizations is when all of those things can be both differentiated and integrated or harmonized as well. Um, yeah. So you've you you've just come out of the woods, I think. To go back to the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was quite a detour. So after coming out of the woods, I was um struck by the need for some kind of structure and process in terms of how people come together to achieve a common aim. And I then discovered permaculture as a design system for sustainability, which was great for, you know, the, the physical aspects of when you're trying to live sustainably. Um, and then permaculture also has a social dimension of like, well, the people care and the, the social side of it. Um, so I studied permaculture, got involved with that for a bit and then, um, scaled that up so the kind of scaling up of permaculture as it applies to human settlements is often um, part of the eco-village movement so i became interested in eco-villages intentional communities land-based rural communities that were that were a bit more organized than a bunch of idealists going off and living in the woods but you know they've got it together to buy some land to they're living in houses and they're um, working and doing some element of sustaining themselves through that so became very interested in eco villages and did a research tour. Uh, I visited around 30 different eco village projects, intentional communities, eco town, eco city projects in Europe and also in North America. And while I was doing that, I was researching their social technology. So their processes for making decisions, their processes for resolving conflict, for running meetings, um, for how they govern, set up their community structures, their social structures. Um, so that gave me, I, and I was doing that because of my experience in the woods, feeling like, wow, we don't have any kind of group infrastructure here or group processes. So I wanted to find out from people who who were doing that. So, you know, I went and visited some intentional communities that had 
you know, over 100 people living there on a few hundred acres of land and had been going for 30 years. And they had a lot of stuff in place. So I was trying to learn from the people who were doing it successfully. Um, and from that, got involved in an eco-village project that was based in Ireland. And again, in Ireland. And we started, it felt a bit more like a, a grown-up version of what we'd done when we moved to the woods. So we went to it with a, someone who, they already had some land, they had some buildings there. And we started with an eco-village design course. So some people came and who were experts in eco-village design. And we went through a whole week together of working together and, and figuring out our like, what are we doing? What's the purpose? What's our mission statement? And what's it all about? And then our second week, so that was the first week that we all spent together. Our second week together, we spent taking a training in formal consensus decision-making. So we were then being trained in working as a group and clarifying our decision-making processes and our, our group processes. So that time we spent together was very um, foundational of getting a clear sense of what we were doing and why we were doing it and also the how of how we were going to be working together. How did you go about accessing that information? Because there's a lot of it out there. I mean, it's, where did you start? Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think if, say, if someone was listening to this and they wanted to create a, a, a community that was based more around these principles you're describing, I mean, I suppose we're going to get into that later, but at that time, how did you go about finding these trainings and, and that kind of thing? Well, I found them because of who I met when I was doing my research of these 30 different projects. I get, made a lot of connections of people who have expertise in that world of who've been doing it for a long time. So that's where I met either I met, you know, trainers who had expertise who, who deliver this or I met people who had, who had had training from them and could recommend them. Whereas now, you know, this is like 25 years later. Um, now there's a lot more online around, you know, there's an eco-village, global eco-village network, which didn't really, you know, that was in its fledgling days at the time. And the internet, that was in its fledgling days as well. So there wasn't a lot of information at the time, but now all of that information is out there and there's a... Yeah communities directory and all sorts of things so you know the time you're talking about people were barely even using email yeah. you know it's just to give some kind of context yeah so for, for that you know some people listening to this might have been born into the internet age you know yeah. whereas you and i have spent as much time alive before the internet was mm. what it is now and then and after so we've kind of had to straddle that massive mm. technological innovation which is sort of been quite a challenge <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah okay so that that's cool so then you uh you know you've, you've you've done this and you're back in ireland and you're doing these trainings where do we go from here so we then spent uh the best part of a year together with that group uh which for me was one of my um like peak experiences of being in a group because we had put in place really good foundations, having done those two courses and coming together, and there was more maturity in the group as well. Um, we had, I think we functioned really well as a group and in terms of what we were trying to do and we got a lot done. Um, and the project 
unraveled after about a year, but it unraveled in a completely different way. And it was more circumstantial, really. It wasn't because we fell out with each other or we were not aligned around purpose. It was more that one person had elderly parents who lived somewhere else. They had to go and visit, stay with the elderly parents. Um, Somebody else was due to have a child and move back to live with their parents. Somebody else um, had already been living in an eco-village in another project and was had had enough of like live, living rurally and wanted to live in a bit more because we were living very rurally in Ireland wanted to live in more of a happening place where there were more children more people around so it was more to do with the kind of personal preferences of who was involved and their life circumstances rather than anything to do with the dynamics of the group so there were seven of us you know by the time that three people had decided to leave one of those people were, was my current girlfriend and I was committed to going with her. That meant there were only three people left out of the seven. So um, it just, it unraveled, but in a different way. Um, <clears throat> if someone was listening to this and they were more coming at it from the sort of spiritual practice side of things. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't make distinctions anymore between sacred and profane and spiritual and non-spiritual i mean it's uh, um there, there was a time when that very much was there was a split between those things for me um but if if someone was listening to this conversation and they were more of that kind of spiritual orientation this conversation so far might sound a little terrestrial or um uh you, you know materialistic or something mm. uh, perhaps you you could address that you know what why is this what 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 you're describing this journey of trying to change the world for the better through groups you through working with group, with groups of people how is that how does that line up with this kind of spiritual um world um in in your in your eyes Hmm. so a number of different ways um i don't know if i'll be able to address all of them that spark for me but um one of them is around the idea of service and that um you know addresses the question of what am i doing here why what what's my um you know, what's my purpose or why I'm on the planet or am I here to do something or what do I want to do? You know, what if I look back on my life, what do I want to look back on um, from my deathbed? Those kinds of questions. So it addresses a, the profound question of why am I here and what's my role? And um, the part of that answer that might be around service of how do I offer myself to a purpose that is greater than just my own personal well-being and how can I do that in a way that is not um, governed ruled dominated by my ego and by my desire to appear a certain way or to achieve a certain status or to get a certain amount of gratification back from it So how do I engage and participate in the world 
in a way that is providing service and that is truly providing service where I can get myself out of the way. I mean, there's a lot I could say about it, but let me pause there. to see. Yeah, go yeah, there. that's good. I mean, maybe later in the story, we might come to some of the work you did with Craig Hamilton and people like that, um, which, which might... But just I'm just if, if someone had got this far in the conversation and mm-hmm. they were coming out from that end uh, angle, they might. I think one thing I'd add also is that in this non-dual spiritual perspective, the body of our planet and also the body of the our, uh, our community, you know, the body of humanity, the species, and then our situation with all other species. The, the this is all one being one body and um you know if you if you think it's all about your own uh transformation or spiritual illumination then you're painting out this the other side of this non-dual uh perspective where you know we are inextricably connected um organically and uh some of the other people that have talked about the new sphere which is this sort of conscious a bit like james lovelock's gaia thing that Mm. that connects all the microorganisms all over the planet in one big kind of skin of living stuff Mm. there's this new sphere which is our all the consciousness i mean i'd I'd actually include animal consciousness all animal consciousness in that too Mm. there's this kind of layer of consciousness which is connected all around the planet and uh, in the same way that if you you know it's, it's this kind of web of interconnection if you tweak one part of the web it you know c- has repercussions on you know the, all, all the way throughout it so um i think sometimes people i've encountered spiritual organizations or individuals that say all of this stuff that you and I've been talking about so far on this call is part of this illusion. It's the matrix or something. And we're all supposed to wake up from the matrix and Mm. get out of it. And um, I think it's my opinion uh, that, that that is only engaging with half of the picture of this, what I think is a better um, non-dual thing of, of connecting all of this in in one thing so. yeah yeah beautiful yeah. and i can add to that by saying I, I think what another perspective is kind of slightly similar but also there's something a bit different in it which is if you're interested in or if you want to take that spiritual perspective on what we've been talking about you can see it that being in relationship is one of the most profound ways to engage in spiritual practice if you choose to you know any kind of intimate relationship will bring up our stuff and how we're showing up in our ego and trying to control and dominate or surrender you know that whole relationship dynamic and that that the the fertility of what can come up for us spiritually in in relationship is amplified many many times in a group setting because of the complexity of the web of relationships that exists in a group. And so the opportunities for spiritual work, if you like, or exploration 
and being challenged spiritually um, are just massive in groups. I, I think it, it's sim um, people often think that spirituality obeys different laws to everything else in life, mm. but uh, I, I, it's not something I buy that perspective. So we, we do a lot of community gardening work here at where I live and you know it's sort of like 15 people get together for the day and we all do stuff in the garden and the things we get achieved are absolutely mind-blowing you know you stand back at the end of the day and you're like wow and that's we've got a really really lush garden and that's how that has happened whereas if you went in on your own no matter even if you're Alan Titchmarsh or some you know really amazing gardener and on an individual level it's the scope is really limited by just the sheer amount of energy one person can bring to something versus several. And it's not just adding the quantity. It's not like um, one person versus 10. So 10 people are 10 times more effective than one person. Mm. It doesn't work in that kind of the arithmetic's not. There's something counterintuitive that when 10 people come together more than 10 times work can happen and yeah. um and i think spiritual practice is the same i mean you <laughs> you can spend your whole life on your own in a cave for 50 years and you'll you'll do something very deep with that but if you harness that up with some kind of community engagement the 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 potential for some kind of transformational uh energy i i think is in is increased um so and we might get onto that a bit later because craig hamilton's stuff is very much around that isn't yeah. It? Yeah. yeah so um we're back into your story and you, you've just left this gr group in ireland as people have gone their separate ways um and where where do you go from here so then i kind of re-entered what might call mainstream society then um, with my girlfriend at the time we were then um, she was pregnant so we were having a baby and I got a job and reflecting on the experiences both of being in that eco-religion island and having done all of the research around these 30 different projects and learning about permaculture and eco-village design and being in the woods I had the reflection that one of the biggest challenges to human beings living sustainably on the planet is not so much about the physical aspects of, you know, energy and food production and um, all of those things. Those can be figured out, but it's more to do with the. Oh, in so many ways, they already have been figured out. Yeah. You know, the, the, the technology infrastructure designs, they exist already. Yeah. And it's yeah. a matter of applying them. Mm in in the uh, appropriate ways so the whole drive of what i've been trying to do which is you know show how it's possible to live with the, with the land and all those things it's like the issues aren't so much around that the issues are more and the obstacles are more to do with the social technology rather than the physical scientific technology the social technology of how do we work together in groups how can we make decisions together how can we resolve conflicts how can we align around a purpose? How do we learn together? How do we unleash that collective intelligence that is going to be more intelligent than any single person, however smart they are? 
how do we do those things? Um, I, so that was a reflection I had of, well, this is where I want to go with my life. This is where I want to develop some expertise because that seems to be the biggest obstacle. So you've uh, explored all of these different pieces of the puzzle and you've kind of at this point landed on almost your niche as a person you know you've when when people are trying to ch uh, change their own lives or change culture and society um <clears throat> you know it's quite common for people to think oh there's so many things to do so many ways to do this and i want to do all of them i want to do everything right now and that it's completely overwhelming and you get the burnout thing happens. Um, and then quite often people will discover that there's, there's their niche in this whole orchestra of change agents around the world. Everybody's got unique talents and you know, but in a, like in an orchestra, everybody's not playing the flute. You know, you've got the flute section and the violin section and that. And, so while holding this bigger picture of how all these pieces fit together and the importance of all of them, at the same time, people will gravitate to one of these areas and become kind of an expert in them. But while at the same time, never losing sight of, of the, the wider picture of how these pieces fit together and also working on those other areas to the level that they're not sinking the whole boat by being a hole in the boat and providing a leak. So how that, you know, in individual practice, um, you know, if, if I, my, if I, if, if I look at my own life, I kind of try and do these body, heart, mind, spirit practices, but I'm sort of more of a specialist in the spiritual mind stuff probably is where my, my Nate, my home, is and where i do the deepest work but I'll, I'll always have some body component to it and psychotherapy um psychotherapeutic thing as well um so i just wanted to pick that up because that's a theme that's come up in conversations i've had with other people around this multidisciplinary approach is we're not saying everybody has to do everything all the time um you know it's, it's okay to specialize in one thing but never losing sight of the, the wider picture. So sorry, that was a <laughs> bit of a detail. Um, but I want it's, it's, a, it's an important theme that's cropping up again and again. Mm. Yeah. And we can take another turning off of that detour, if you like, sure. and then come back to the road. So another aspect to what you just said, I, I, I resonate with that. And my own experience of, of myself and also of what I've seen in other people is the particular thing that we're drawn to develop that expertise around and really focus on in a big way is, is part of our ongoing life's journey in terms of um, it often has a lot of shadow material mm. involved in it. Yeah. So, um, you know, you'll get, you know, the kind of typical things are, you know, I was doing some work with a, sort of conflict resolution training once and this guy older guy who was an experienced mediator said you know he says you'll never meet more angry people than do conflict resolution work you know they're always 
full of anger and they always have loads of conflict issues that need resolving that are unresolved from their past. And it's because of that that they're drawn into doing conflict resolution work. Or, you know, the psychotherapy, people who are drawn to psychotherapy and becoming psychotherapists. Um, partly it's, it's, it's like the, the archetype of the wounded healer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, my wife is very fond of saying to me, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you're into all that group work stuff, aren't you? You know, that's because you're such a nightmare in groups you know, or you're interested in helping people work together well because you're so bloody hard to work with. Yeah. God, God bless marriages. Yeah. <laughs> For giving us those reflections. Yeah. So. And I, I do think there's truth in that, you know, so it's almost like it's because there's shadow materials. There's something in our past that we that needs resolving that attracts us to go into these fields and work in them. And to bring it back to the spiritual thing, I I know some people believe that we have come here on this planet to sort of do a mission, a life Mm. mission. Yeah. And uh, it kind of ties in a little bit like with that kind of idea. It's not necessarily something I, I, that kind of thing is so vast, I can't even comprehend it. So Mm -hmm. I'll let other people worry about that. But that's quite a common spiritual perspective on this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so in terms of that thing of, of going into the, the kind of matrix of complex relationships that exist in a group, um, it will um, evoke, like stimulate or spark or evoke um, material from our past that needs working on uh, for everybody probably. You know, some people might feel excluded. Some people might feel like they're being controlled. Some people might feel like they're needing attention and always trying to get the group's attention. You know, always things like that. Somebody might be reminded of their granddad who, you know, whatever. Um, And so that's how I think groups can provide an amazing opportunity for um, both us working on our shadow material and unresolved issues from our past and also spiritually in terms of how am I showing up as an ego and how much am I trying to dominate and control and how much am I able to surrender myself in service? Hmm. And that for a, a group organization to be healthy, it's, it helps if there's the recognition that all of those people come with all of those things, but you don't want to let them dominate what's happening in the group. So that, you know, you can put in place some kind of rules of the game that mean that those ish, our shadow material doesn't start to dominate what's going on in the group and, and take us off course so we can't actually do anything um, without neglecting the quality of interpersonal relationships entirely, you know, and allowing, creating conditions for healthy personal relationships and for processing issues that they come up, but within certain constraints because not every group can be a therapy group. Mm. Yeah, if, if I think back to the, this lady in this meeting that I was attending, who's, who stood up and did her little operatic performance. That was, that was kind of a, an, a pure example of someone just pushing their ego into a group. Mm. Um, and we had no, no framework with which to challenge that kind of behavior. We, we just had to sort of assimilate everybody's egoic outpourings, um, which, yeah crippled the effectiveness of the group and when when a group preferences 
uh, a way of working which is around oh, all voices must be heard and every perspective is valid without balance counterbalancing a need for structure and process um, it can yeah make it very difficult to get anything done and i understand i mean i wasn't personally involved in the occupy movement but the accounts i've heard from people who were were that that's part of what happened is that it was so consent based and you know mass mass consensus and all of those things and really all voices must be heard is is in large part to in large um led to it kind of it fizzling out in the way that it did and i think you know you can contrast that with something like the extinction rebellion global movement which from its quite early on in its life had um had a structure and a process and a way of working so i was involved in helping set up the self-organizing system of the extinction rebellion and wrote the original constitution which is a set of rules of the game that they've been playing by now i'm not suggesting that that is, works great and um it's a great model to follow you know there are lots of issues with it with introducing something like that into a global social movement but there is at least some kind of reference point you know there are there is some rules of the game that are explicit and there are some um, ways of working and there are lots of issues with it as well but um yeah so, so i'm saying what i'm trying to say is there's something around trying to contain you know the the end of the polarity that's around structure and process and ex explicit working agreements is it was around trying to contain the chaos that can come from over preferencing um no structure you know just like yeah. lack of structure so you've we, in your story we come to the point where you've realized that your kind of calling is based around this interpersonal um you know the ways that uh that we, people work together uh yeah so that let's explore that yeah part of your story a bit now so and at that point i asked myself the question well if this is what i want to develop expertise in and if, if this is how i want to be in service then where is the expertise in our culture around these questions and these issues and i concluded that well one of the places is in this idea of management and leadership because management and leadership is all about people coming together working for some kind of purpose uh, to get stuff done to achieve that purpose so i then took a deep dive into the world of, of management and leadership i did a, a msc course in management development and social responsibility so i didn't want to go down the classic mba course because that's much more about just running a business i wanted to look dive more deeply into management and leadership as things in themselves and look at that in a socially responsible way so I did an MSc course there. This was like the first half of the um, 2000s, so like 2002 to 2003, and took a very deep dive into that world of, well, what is management? You know, what is managerial control? What is responsibility, accountability? What's leadership? Um, different models and approaches to leadership. And a big part of the course was involved in people reflecting on who am I and how do I show up? In a management context and as a leader and so i did that for a few years um then worked for a, a national charity for a few years doing you know 
um, youth-led community action where I was putting in, in practice a lot of those things and ended up going freelance uh, because I, I'd kind of had enough of the organisation that I was working for. The dynamics were... were um, I'd, I'd guess I'd lost patience with the kind of dynamics there that are around the management hierarchy and um, dysfunctional uses of power that were to do with people's personal stuff coming in and getting in the way of how they use power, you know. And because I was familiar with all of that and because of the organisation I was in, there was limited influence I had, I was like, oh, I can't be doing with this anymore. So I stepped out and thought, I thought, you know, I want to move move back into supporting groups because I'd already done some of that already and thought, how can I best support social change groups or groups that are working to improve the world or create a more sustainable future? And I thought with, with what I've learned, the best way I can do that is I can deliver training or consulting or some kind of group support just to help groups work better together. So I moved into the kind of consulting and training phase i think that's about the time we met is that you you had a company called responsibility that's right yeah yeah and you were working with transition town and things like that yeah yeah and i think we met around that time about 2007 or something like that yeah Yeah. so i i was just at the point of starting that or just in that year or two by then Hmm. and from then Um, as well as my MSc, I just did a load of more training around different models and different group processes. You know, I got trained as a mediator. I got trained in Edward de Bono's Six Hats thinking. I got trained in, you know, I studied loads more around group structures, group processes and tools and ended up delivering a course in four transition towns groups uh, that was originally called Weaving Magic that was about helping groups work together better. And the the idea is that when people come together to achieve a purpose, if they have it in place enough of a group structure and process, then there's a kind of magic that happens um, by by having those things in place that unleashes the creativity and collective intelligence for people without bringing in too much constraint. And so the course was about how do you weave together that kind of magic to create these um, high high functioning groups with high levels of collective intelligence. I think you're one of the the most trained people I've ever met. <laughs> I know. I suffer for it. <laughs> <laughs> the number of trainings you've done is is an enormous yeah. list. Yeah, it's crazy. So uh, you know, for anybody listening, uh, that y- you will un- mo- you you'll be unlikely to meet somebody who has done as much training as Nick in all of this stuff. Um, so you're talking from a, a wealth of training mm. and experience in the field. You know, mm. this is not, you're not just some theoretician, theoretician sitting, you know, armchair theoretician or up in the ivory tower or something. You've, you've been right out there literally, um, in, in, in the thick of it. In a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, stepping out and taking this wider perspective through these trainings, you know, it's like you kind of, you get this training, which is some kind of mind expansion, basically. Um, and uh, then bringing that back into groups, coming back out again, 
getting some new mental territory shown to you through whatever training, coming back in, doing the work, coming back out again, like this kind of yeah. movement. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, you're working with Transition Town, um, Weaving Magic. Yeah. And that training had several different iterations. Uh, it, it progressed from Weaving Magic to becoming called Effective Groups. So it was training much more like practically in terms of how do you create an effective group? And then it became effective collaboration. And then it became conscious collaboration. So each one of those was a different kind of bringing in different dimensions. Have you still got me? Cause yeah, yeah, you glitched. So I mean, the only bit we lost there was conscious collaboration, the, that last yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. So then developed into conscious collaboration. So each one of, and with the conscious collaboration is when I started working with my partner, who's a psychotherapist, and she started bringing in the internal dimension into groups. So until that point, I'd been focusing much more on the group processes, how you make decisions, how you run meetings, how you resolve conflicts. And she brought in the internal dimension of, you know, who am I in a group? How do I show up in a group? What issues are there for me in a group in terms of how I interact? And so that felt like a good addition of bringing in the internal dimension to the external dimension that I was working with. Yeah. Yeah, I am um, around the same time, at around the same time as that. Um, I had the recognition that my own personal psychotherapy was extremely important. You know, if I wanted to live uh, a mm -hmm. good life, um, no, individually and collectively, that that it was really apparent that that had been missing from my life, um, and uh, it's become a very important cornerstone of of my life. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. And I would add to that, as someone who focuses on how groups work, I would also add that if you want to be an effective group participant and a responsible group participant then psychotherapy is also probably an essential part of that as well. Yeah. And I think people have to get over this idea that psychotherapy is just for crazy people. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, if you want to be a healthy, if you want to be emotionally and psychologically healthy person, psychotherapy is the, you know, one of the, the best routes out there to that. Um, so if you if you're interested in optimum performance, not just mm. being you know getting over your neuroses and things, then it's uh, it's all about that as well. Yeah, yeah, and then that links in to the Craig Hamilton work, which we can talk briefly about now. Mm, yeah, um, because this idea of um, one of the things that really drew me into his work is the way that he framed it is, you know, if you're, if you're interested in being spiritual, you know, how and an aspect of that is, is in service to a, a larger purpose. How, how can you um, get yourself out of the way to do that? And if you're interested in becoming a more responsible and well-functioning group member, how do you stop your shadow material getting in the way of, and being obstacles for you doing that? Then, you know, it then follows that the work that I do on myself spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, isn't just 
about my own personal self-improvement project. It's not just to make me feel better and me feel happier and me feel more satisfied in my life. It's so that I can get myself and my issues out of the way of me being a more effective, functional person to work for a purpose and be part of a group that's about something larger than myself. Yeah. And I think, I think even embodiment, how, how you are in your own body is an important thing. You know, if you, if you go into a room and you look at the body language, language of, of the people in, in that room, everybody's bringing a different, they're transmitting a different energy, a different mood into the room with their bodies. And that's a really useful thing to understand. You know, if you go into a room and your shoulders are, you've got your hackles up, you know, like a, like a, like a dog or something. Mm. And, you know, you're not breathing, your breathing's all shallow. You, you look agitated and you're, even if you're trying to bring some kind of <coughs> constructive as, uh, constructiveness and some emotional peace and benefit to the group if your body is telling a different story you know that's that's important knowledge to have you know if you and some people walk into room and just physically they overpower the room um and you know where some people their body is saying i don't want to be here they're almost kind of squirming uh, when if, if you don't understand about embodiment and what your body your your actual physical presence in a group brings um you know it can create all sorts of disharmony um and 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 mixed messaging too someone could be saying something but but we are we're intuitive animals you know we we so much of our communication is non-verbal so if you if someone's telling you one thing but their body is saying another thing, there's this dissonance, emotional cognitive dissonance that was just, yeah. So it's another important piece, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I, um, I I'm very tall, uh, so I'm 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 a very big person. When I walk into a room, I know that literally, like in terms of volume, mass, I take up quite a big space in a room. And I have to take that into account that some people find that intimidating. Um, you know, so simple things like I might sit down to talk to somebody rather than just stand there towering mm. over them, you know, or not sit at the front of a room, sit at the back, mm. you know, so people can actually see over my head. It's just, you know, it can be really simple things like that. But mm. I just wanted to raise that. Mm. Mm. So Craig Hamilton. Well, I just wanted to bring in that perspective around um, the whole spiritual project and also the whole thing around psychotherapy and um, emotional and mental well-being. A lot, some people have been approaching that as part of their own personal self-improvement project. And it can be so much more than that if you want to be in service. Uh, those things are essential to be a, an effective agent in service of a greater purpose. Yeah, that's what that what you were saying sparked for me there. Mm. Cool. So where where do we go after Craig Hamilton? I mean, I think probably his work might be ongoing for you. I don't know if you're still involved in in that. We certainly were for quite a number of years. 
I was for years and it's still a, the kind of foundation of my spiritual um, practice around, I mean, I don't know what, quite what to say about it. What his work does is, is encourages us or supports us to um, take a step back like in, and get a perspective on ourselves uh, as, you know, beings who have a subjective experience in the world and then we can take a step back and have and kind of witness oh there's this feeling again or oh this pattern again that i'm normally doing is is playing out and so that increase in perspective on ourselves and our own limitations of our own patterns can help us uh, work with those patterns and be less limited by them and so that's shown up for me in terms of how you know my meditation practice um helping me do that get self more self-awareness that then when i'm in a group or when i'm in a relationship or a situation and and being triggered and something's coming up for me there's something of more mental space or emotional space around it that i don't have to go straight into a reaction and i can instead notice have a little bit of space to notice that reaction and choose oh do i want to go down that path or not um, and so what I found is it's a bit like working out you know if I don't work out for a while and I start to get a bit saggy and floppy it's a bit like that with the meditation practice you know if I don't keep that practice up then my my capacity to have that internal mental and emotional space um, decreases and then I'm then less effective and I'm more limited and more uh, have more things in my way well, they, this stuff is leaky, you know, physical health, mm. spiritual health through meditation. If you don't keep up a practice, the kind of whatever it is you create around that just slowly leaks out. Mm. And it's like, you, it's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a, um, a bicycle tire that's got a puncture, but you just keep having to pump it mm. up. Mm. One other thing I wanted to draw out is um, that Craig Hamilton stuff's very much, a central theme of his work is around evolution uh, and and the evolutionary process, not necessarily in the Darwinian biological sense, but things, anything uh, becoming more complex and more healthy, more adjusted, more adaptive over time. And it's, in, I can interestingly, I can see a, this pattern playing out in your life story, working with these different groups that you know, the evolutionary perspective is not talking about some destination, some utopia where you get, it's just constantly improving on what came before. So all of these groups you've been involved with, you sort of learn the lessons that what went well and what didn't go well created some new thing that put into play, implemented those lessons learned. Um, it was a little bit better than what came before. Then, you know, that came to an end. And then, so there's, there's nothing wrong with creating something, it doing something for a period of time, then all things naturally dissipate. And then something new is born out of that that's sort of more evolved and that dissipates something new. And it takes quite a, a, a shift in perspective to see that as something natural, good and beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know if you can keep if you can see that that ever increasing um arc to it uh you know we're, we're sort of there's a there's a mainstream view which likes to think of us let's just create something perfect and let and keep it running forever mm. um and that this evolutionary perspective is stepping outside of of that yeah and for me that's founded on the idea of of fit is to what extent am i or is a group or an organization or a project or a movement um a good fit for the context or the environment that it's a part of so it's that kind of perspective of ecological niche you know if an animal or a a being has a particular niche that it's going to survive and adapt if it if it fits really well and then if the environment changes then it needs to change adapt in some way to be able to fit better one of the characteristics of our moment in history is that the environment is constantly changing whether yeah. it's cl- whether it's climate change technological innovation i mean we've allude we just we pointed to earlier that you and i have had to straddle the pre-internet age and the post-internet age and how what a massive adaptation that's required mm. uh, from us individually and as a society and culture yeah yeah so change is happening more rapidly now uh, and hence the, re- the this kind of the urgency of recognizing this this the importance of this ability this flexibility and adaptive um way that we need to be as individuals and as groups yeah yeah and that's in terms of my work and my path you know that's really where my focus is now is in working with groups or teams or organizations that um recognize that need that a a group or a team or organization as a whole needs to develop that capacity to adapt in response to a rapidly changing environment and I'm pulling together different, you know, lots of different themes from lots of different places of working in this whole field for the last 25 years of um, the social technologies that will support that to happen. So you've been working, have you been doing stuff with deep adaptation? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, So, so to start from the beginning for people who haven't maybe come across that term. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So deep adaptation is, is a, I guess that you could call it a global social movement at this point. It was started um, by a professor of sustainability called Jem Bendal in uh, two years ago now, middle of 2018. He wrote a paper about, um, climate change which took as its premise that the things that have been in that are in place the processes that are in place around the way our climate's changing and now on this irreversible path that means that the critical systems on which our lives depend are going to meet some kind of um, decline or collapse in the coming years and so that our way of life is going to be seriously disrupted uh, and we're going to meet you know either social social decline or social collapse collapse in the coming years and that rather than trying to deny it or avoid it or prevent it it might be a better idea to accept 
the reality that that's what's happening and then figure out what kind of how we want to adapt to that and that that adaptation will require very deep changes in our lives like very deep changes like around how we live how we earn money um thinking about our attitude and relationship to death those kinds of things and so um there are people in communities all over the world that are, have read the paper and are starting to work, like make connections with other people in their communities around uh, this agenda. So in the paper, Jem named um, four different things that he's called the deep adaptation agenda that can help us in our reflections of how we can adapt more deeply. And they all begin with R, these four things. So one is, uh, should I keep going? Mm, yeah. yeah. So one is resilience. Um, what do we currently have in our lives that we want to keep hold of and that, that makes sense to maintain and that we want to develop some kind of resilience around? So there may be things like, you know, food production and energy generation and access to water and education. And second R is restoration, which is looking at how things have developed over the last few hundred years. What are things in our natural world and our social worlds and other worlds that might need to be restored? So restoring ecosystems and um, communities and things like that. So second R is art, restoration. Third one is um, reconciliation. So of all of the things, well, actually, let's do the third one as relinquishment. So of all the things in my life at the moment, if I'm facing this kind of prospect in the future, what may I need to let go of? What might be useful for me to consider relinquishing and letting go of? That might be something like, you know, access to technology or access to food that is flown in from overseas things like that and then the fourth one is reconciliation of uh, are there any relationships or is there anything in my life that i need to reconcile myself to so that i'm in a good place to be able to deal with unpredictable and, and disruptive changes mm. so that's a deep adaptation agenda and what's happening is that people are coming together in communities over the world around this agenda and meeting up with other connecting with other people in their communities and thinking well what can we do and how can we be in ways that uh, will support each other ourselves and each other to do some of these things on this agenda so that any challenging times ahead we're more able to deal with them yeah so that that is some pretty heavy stuff mm -hmm. um and to stand your ground and look that particular dragon straight in the eyes requires quite a lot of psychological, emotional, physical and spiritual depth, you know, uh, as individuals and as a collective. Um, and I think the, this, this is where spiritual and psychological practices really come to the fore. Uh, in giving us the resources to for that particular showdown with the dragon or whatever um, <clears throat> I think one thing that I that in my life um, has been a, a, an amazing blessing is um, this kind of spiritual perspective that everything is perfect already it always has been always will be at, at, from one perspective uh, that is a very important perspective. It's true, but it's also a partial perspective because also, obviously, there's 
on a more relative level, there's so much that uh, needs being made more perfect. Um, but I think if if what if one can hold one's life within that as the kind of the ultimate context that 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 life is okay you know it's that we live in a good universe so to speak um and that we we don't live in this kind of original sin state where the kind of basic premise from life is that everything is awful and sinful and dirty you know and and, uh, we live in a we're condemned to live in we're basically living in hell um uh and i think if you if that's your kind of the context from which you act um you never lose sight of the kind of love and respect and trust uh which i think is is a is a really healing thing in groups that are coming together and contemplating some of these really overwhelming catastrophes that might happen in the future well are happening now but you know without denying it just letting it in so i'm not talking about spiritual bypassing i'm talking about having the the sort of depth in your identity to actually be host to some of these extremely painful emotions uh when when looking at this stuff and going through the stages of grief and all of those kind of things um yeah that if you if you don't have that fundamental grounding in the peace that surpasses all understanding then i think the 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 the, the danger is this kind of panic existential panic which is ruinous um i i i think the word panic comes from um when battles uh, were being fought uh, and the, the Celts were fighting battles and with the Romans and stuff where the uh, Pan would, would possess one side, Pan, the God, uh, would possess one of the sides of the army and, and they would become possessed with panic and everything would just fall apart on their side and they'd lose the fight. And it's kind of, Panic is a very corrosive force in groups of people. And, you know, if, if we're going to be effective with making the world a better place uh, in the ways we've been talking about, um, we, need to, we need to be conscious of, how, of the ruinous effects of panic. So we, this, I, it's been a really wonderful conversation and I, and I, and I hope that it's, going to help people listen you know listening to your journey um and some of the insights that you've got over doing this stuff um is there anything anything any last things you want to say uh, that you think are important that we haven't said mm. yeah thank you so there's two things there's one is i wanted to give a response to what you just said about panic mm. um and then i wanted to say something around kind of how I've woven my work into work around psychological safety and speaking truth to power mm. as, a, as a, you know, Great. as a kind of way to wrap things up. So I'll just launch in and you can kind of edit this as needed. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that piece around panic is one of the reasons that for me, having been involved with the Extinction Rebellion for almost a year, and I was really quite involved for that time, uh, helping with the self-organizing self system, I chose to step back um, from being involved. I'm still involved a little bit, but more just in terms of advice and support. And I, the reason I chose to step back was partly because of my experience of that kind of sense of panic, of that it seems like the kind of rebellion is around, you know, trying to kind of prevent um, what's happening, you know, this climate and ec ecological emergency happening. And um, my own experience while being in involved and also what I observed in the experience of other people is there was a real kind of urgency and drive and you know, that was driven, I think, partly from a place around this kind of panic or prevention or something like that. And just for me, it just wasn't a very kind of nurturing experience and things were out of balance. You know, there's a whole movement around regeneration, regenerative culture in the Extinction Rebellion, but it's often out of balance with the action. And One of the things that we know about panic, when people are in a state of panic, everything narrows down for them yeah. <clears throat> even you you even get tunnel vision um literally tunnel vision with your eyes you get the flight and fright response you know your, your breathing shallows down um all of the blood goes from your extremities you know to your essential organs and you're kind yeah. of pumped full of adrenaline it's um it's not a pretty picture i mean it, it, it it's designed to give you the power to get through a near-term emergency but it's not a sustainable way to um, live your life as an individual or as an organization personally I wasn't able to integrate and bring in the whole regenerative culture approach well enough in my work with the extinct rebellion to to keep going so that was partly my what, what took me to stepping back and also just a recognition that with the deep adaptation work there's something there that feels slightly more whole in terms of what you were talking about you know that sense of peace and things and um things being okay and for me what i wanted to say about that is my practice around how i work with the deep adaptation agenda is is it's a kind of like both and and beyond practice that's recognizing what's going for me to sustain myself in facing the prospect of systems decline and collapse and what we need to do to adapt um, it's important for me to recognize that sense that things are okay and they are perfect already in the kind of ground of being, you know, spiritual context and dimension that is there. So that's one thing. And it's really important for me to recognize that things aren't okay. And there's a hell of a lot of stuff that isn't okay and that is worth being in service to try and work with and change and to hold both of those perspectives, the both and. And then the beyond piece is uh, when we did the universe walk last year, just hearing around the mass extinction events that there have been so far on the planet. And this is maybe going to be, you know, what is it? I think the sixth mass extinction event <coughs> yeah. we're involved in. <clears throat> and even in these previous extinction events, you know, something like between 50 and 90% of species went extinct in these events. And each time the world, um, the ecosystems in the world regenerated to become more complex, more rich, more diverse, more amazing than the previous time. 
And so it may be that if we are involved in an extinction event and species do die out, it's just a small blink in the eye of the world's like history of ecosystems. And, you know, we heard that in another 20 million years or so, things are going to come back even richer and more diverse. So it's holding that kind of bigger perspective than I've got in my life at the moment of, well, 20 million years isn't very long in the life of the earth. And if we're an extinction event in another 20 million years, things will be fine. Yeah. And that, that relates to being able to go beyond your own egoic yeah. perspective. Yeah. That ultimately that's a transpersonal view of this whole process this what life is about yeah um and it takes quite a lot to get beyond the limits of your own personal wants and needs and ours as a species um too um and our moment in history yeah uh, putting yeah. that all in context and i mean I, and i don't mean again this is all about holding paradox that i mean i don't mean that in a sense that the only perspective that matters is this impersonal, transpersonal, million year, 30,000 foot view of everything. Um, but, but, you know, that's kind of going a little bit back to what we were saying about the sort of socialist states have this very impersonal view of the system. Um, and it was, the, it was, and ran roughshod over the more personal needs of people. Um, uh, and and the and the near term goals uh, that 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 people have, and um, so I'm not saying that that's yeah. It's it's all about ha- being able to hold multiple perspectives simultaneously, without collapsing into any one of them. Yeah. 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 Which is but, essential, I think. That's what that's what s- supports and nurtures and resources me in this work around deep adaptation is being able to do that. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, when when someone first encounters the deep adaptation stuff and you describe it, it sounds pretty scary and overwhelming. But to hear you say that it's helped you come to terms with uh, this predicament we all find ourselves in, mm. that's really encouraging because it's uh, you know uh, in a world of hope and fear, you know you want to give people some hope as well as the fear, you know. So yeah, so thank you so much for for doing this call it's been really generous of you and uh our friendship is is one i've really cherished over the years and uh it's um so important to have friends along the way you know do when you're involved in this stuff to keep you grounded and centered and uh and to to just share what we're you're all going you know we're all going through um so if people want to find out more about what you do or anything you care about where would you direct people yeah well i'll say first of all thank you as well ralph i've also equally treasured our our relationship and look forward to it continuing for many years and thanks for this call and this series of calls you're doing i've enjoyed it and if people do want to find out more the best place is to go to the website it's evolvingorganization.co so organization spelt with an S, not a Z. So evolving organization and then just .co. And that's um, the place where uh, I've put my work. Cool.
I have online courses there in this in this stuff and blog and videos to watch and all sorts of things. Thank you.